Our text for this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-17. through 17. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy in our lives, for calling us to worship as your people this morning, and for delivering to us your word that we have just read. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done to redeem us, and we thank you, Heavenly Father, for preserving your word down to this very day, that through the scriptures we might have encouragement and hope and the strength that we need to be your people in this day. We ask that by your spirit, you would confront us with the truth of your word, convict us of our sin and where we fall short of your glory. Turn our eyes to you, Lord Jesus, where we might find forgiveness. And by your spirit, would you enable us to be doers of this word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you go to the National Weather Service's website, which is weather.gov, that's pretty easy to remember, you're gonna find a list of resources that will help you prepare for a variety of weather emergencies. You're gonna find resources that talk about air quality or heat index. You'll find resources about rip currents, blizzards. There's even a section on drought. 
Now, as you would expect, if you go to this website, what you're going to find are resources that point you to up-to-date weather reports that might be relevant to you or tips that are going to help you prepare. But what surprised me is in addition to these resources, you're also going to find stories from survivors which I found really interesting, like this story from a man named Bob, which sounds really generic, but it's a real story, from New York. Here's what Bob had to say. In November of 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit our forested property near the Delaware River. Since we lived a couple hours inland and over 1,000 feet above sea level, we thought that we were fairly safe, but we had a lot to learn about being ready for a situation like this. Trees blew down and ripped out our power lines. Our circuit breaker exploded. Several large trees fell on our house and partially crushed our roof. Our daughter was watching the storm in her room just as the wind hit and a huge tree blew down and landed directly above her roof. It was only an old garden trellis that I think saved her life. After the house was rebuilt and Hurricane Sandy was mostly behind us, my wife and I sat down and made a list of things that we probably could have done better. Hindsight is 2020, but only if you live to tell the tale. This is why Bob, I think, felt compelled to tell us his story about preparing for a hurricane, for others to be prepared as he wished he had been prepared. And this is why Paul felt compelled to write 2 Timothy, that Timothy, that we might be prepared. You remember that one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Timothy from prison, awaiting his execution, was that he wanted to address what he describes in chapter 1 as a great falling away in the churches of Asia. You remember that it says in chapter 1 that the churches in Ephesus, where, where Timothy was pastoring, they were in the midst of an awful storm, and many, whether through scandal or through heresy and apostasy, were turning away from the gospel, even men that Paul and Timothy knew personally. And as we observed last week, we are in a similar place in our generation, from scandals to apostasy and rampant heresy, the church in our generation in the United States is in the midst of a great storm, a storm that I think threatens to destroy our gospel legacy. But just as Bob's story about Hurricane Sandy is meant to prepare those who are preparing for a hurricane, God intends this passage in 2 Timothy this morning to help us prepare us for the spiritual storms that we will face in our generation. And so as we look at this passage, we'll consider what does it actually look like for us to be prepared for these times of great difficulty that lie ahead. And Paul begins by saying that the, the way in which we prepare is to know the season of life in which we live. I want you to notice here in verse 1 that Paul begins by saying, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, hurricane season spans from June 1st to November 30th. I had to Google that because I did not grow up weathering hurricanes. But for those of you who did grow up weathering hurricanes, that is not news. But I want you to imagine for a second seeing a great deal online for a beach house. 
And that beach house is at a great price. It's down in the Bahamas. You and your family are ready for a vacation and ready to go. And it's the perfect time in your year and the perfect time in your budget to make this happen. So you book the vacation completely unaware that you have booked a vacation during hurricane season. Now you might be saving some money. You might not experience a hurricane, but it's very likely between June 1st and November 30th, you very well may be not relaxing on the beach with a cold lemonade in your hand. You might be putting up boards on your house. The same thing is true about how Paul is describing how we live in our day. He says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. This phrase here that he uses, the last days, is how Paul is describing the era of church history that we live in as God's people. It's full of theological meaning. Now, you guys remember when we were in the book of Joel, that a phrase that came up over and over again was this idea of the day of the Lord, that, that day when Christ will return, when God's holiness and justice will finally be fully revealed, final judgment for sin will be rendered when those who are in Christ will be spared God's wrath and welcomed into the new heavens, and those who are not in Christ will experience God's wrath and judgment, a glorious and a terrifying day. The last days, this is what Paul is talking about, are the days between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. These are the days when God's word is going out to all the nations. It's when God's word is warning and calling people to repent and believe in Christ. It is a day where God is expressing great mercy and great patience. It's a day when God is gathering his people and perfecting him. But this passage also tells us they are days of great difficulty. The, the, the literal meaning of these words in the Greek is seasons of stress. We get a sense of this, I think, as we, as we look at the book of Revelation, for example. Throughout the book of Revelation, we're, we're given symbols that describe for us these cycles of the last days, cycles that represent times of death or famine, times of war or times of conquest. And these days will come to an end when Jesus returns. But until then, we live in an era of history that will be marked by seasons of calm and by seasons of great Difficulty, And the application, I think, is very clear as we think about what it means to be prepared. If you know about hurricane season, then you know what is coming. And just like you wouldn't plan for a dry and a relaxing vacation at a beach house during hurricane season, we too should not expect our generation to be without serious spiritual storms. Now, it doesn't make these spiritual storms enjoyable or easy or simple, but it does mean that we will be prepared. And instead of actually shaking our faith when we experience these spiritual storms, God's word reveals to us that we should expect them, and it will deepen our faith in God's word because we can see that it is coming. We live in these days in history, in the last days, you might call them the hurricane season of history, where being prepared means knowing what season we live in and then preparing ourselves accordingly. 
But it's not just to know about hurricane season, right? That only helps you prepare to some level. You also need to know about a particular storm, right? Because when a hurricane is forming out in the ocean, right, and the National Weather Service begins to study it, what they do is they take all the data that they're gathering about a particular storm, and they create a profile for everybody to learn about this storm, right? And among the information that they offer us is the storm's path, right? Where is the hurricane going to start, and how is it going to crash onto the mainland? What islands is it going to affect? They also give us the storm's category, right? The, the, the level of severity that we should expect from that hurricane. And then lastly, which we'll get to in just a minute, sometimes they name the storm, right? They give it a name, and we'll talk about why that is so important. What's fascinating is in the same way that the National Weather Service categorizes storms, Paul does the same thing in verses 5 through 7. I want you to notice what he says here about the path of spiritual storms that we may experience in our generation. He says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. I want you to notice how Paul is describing those who are responsible for the turmoil that will be experienced among God's people. They are those that, quote, have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. What this means is that these storms do not necessarily start outside of the church. They start from within the church, from among the people in the pews, from among those in the membership, among those maybe even among the leadership itself. The most dangerous storms that we face as God's people will not come from outside of us. It will come from within us of so-called Christians. These people, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, this doesn't mean the denying of God's power, that their lives or their ministries aren't going to be marked by spiritual sign gifts, like speaking in tongues or, you know, the miraculous gift of healing. That's not what Paul is saying. To deny the power of God in this passage means to reject the change of heart and the change of life that God provides and that God requires of us in Christ. These people, the ones responsible for the turmoil that will be the storms in our generation, they're putting on a show. Inwardly, they're denying the power of God. They are living lives that are hardened against God's word. That is the source of the storm. Jesus talks about uh, this reality in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the tares. And in that parable, it talks about how this farmer goes out and plants all this good seed. And while the farmer is sleeping, his enemy goes and plants all of these weeds. And then the servants of this great house come and say to the master, why are weeds and good fruit growing up in the same plot? Didn't you just plant good seed? And the master says, well, yes, of course I only planted good seed. An enemy has done this. And they say, well, why don't we go through and just clear out all the weeds? And the wise master says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait until the harvest, until everything has grown up and borne its fruit in every way. And then in the last days, the angels will come and they will gather everything and they'll piece it out. And they'll say, here's the good fruit 
put that in the barn. Here's the, here's the weeds and, and all the trash, and we're going to throw that into the fire. Jesus tells that parable to his disciples to say, that is what it is like living now. God's people, the visible church, is a mixed body, is how we might say that. Filled with those who are genuine Christians and filled with those, as Paul describes them, as imposters. And we don't know. We don't know the heart. But what we do know is how to prepare for these storms. And Paul gives us a really clear description, not just of where the storm starts, but of what it actually looks like, the severity and the category of this storm. I want you to look in verses 2 through 5. Paul describes the storm. He says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and so on. I want you to notice that Paul actually is thinking about these things in various categories. He's describing the primary damage that will be experienced in these storms, and it will be relational. He says people will be abusive, disobedient to their parents, unappeasable. The Greek word there means irreconcilable, unable to come together in unity, slanderous, treacherous. These behaviors that deny the power of godliness are what will make their way through churches and seek to destroy their peace and destroy their purity. But he also describes what's going on in the character of these people responsible for the storm. He says these people will be proud, arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, without self-control. He's not so much talking about the actions of these people, but the state of their hearts. And the application is so clear. It is out of pride. It is out of ingratitude for God's grace. It is out of a lack of self-control and a commitment to our own foolishness that these divisions, these abuses spring. And we would do well to ask the Lord to search our hearts and to know and try our ways. But the most important observation I think Paul gives us about these storms is he says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure and haters of good, not lovers of God. At the heart, or I should say the eye, of every spiritual storm in our generation, what will wreck churches is where our love is placed. When self-love, not the love of God, reigns in our hearts, reigns in our families, reigns in our churches, that is where a spiritual storm will rage. The eye of any spiritual storm is self-love. And if the storm gets too big, Paul says, we should probably name it. Right? He says this in, in verses 8 and 9. Now, the reason that the National Weather Service decides to name a storm when it gets to a certain category is because over the years, they have determined that by naming a hurricane, it actually helps people prepare for the storm. It's because it becomes something that's easily remembered and easily reported on. It becomes something that helps people in the future remember the danger of previous storms, like Bob in our opening illustration of saying, man, I remember Hurricane Sandy. Right? Instead of having to remember the date, you just remember the name. 
That is why the weather service does this. And this is why Paul, I think, in verses 8 and 9, brings up this illustration by name. He talks about Jannes and Jambres, these two men that opposed Moses. He says, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was to those two men. So who are these two men? Well, what Paul is alluding to here are the two Egyptian, Egyptian magicians that we find in the book of Moses, or I should say the book of Exodus. You remember these, these are two men that convinced Pharaoh that the Egyptian gods and that the magic of the Egyptian gods was just as powerful as the God of Israel, right? Aaron and Moses come in and say, let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, nope, not going to do that. So Aaron tosses his staff onto the ground, and just as God promised, it turns into a snake. Well, these two men, these magicians, they say, well, we can do that too. Our gods can make that happen as well. They throw their staffs onto the ground, and they turn into snakes as well. Now, if you keep reading in that story, you realize God is not mocked by the Egyptian gods. He's not mocked by these magicians because the staff of Aaron's consumes, actually eats the staffs of these two magicians. And as the story of Exodus keeps going, you find out that these magicians declare to Pharaoh, we are out of our depths. We have no idea how Aaron and Moses, how this God of Israel is destroying all of our gods through all the various plagues that they are bringing onto Egypt. God is not mocked. Paul names these corruptors by name. He says, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. These are weighty things. But it demonstrates to us, I think, at times, why it is wise to name names about the spiritual storms in our generation when we speak about scandal or we think about heresy. And how is this supposed to help us? Let's consider that for a moment. How does knowing about hurricane season, how does knowing about the details of a storm, how does naming a storm, how is this supposed to help us? It gives us a deep sense of our need for preparation. We cannot have adequate time to prepare if we do it last minute. And so Paul says we need to be about the work of preparing for these storms, not just when they happen in our generation, but beforehand as well. And to prepare properly, we need to know how to respond. This is what Paul says here in verse 5. Paul begins by saying, when a spiritual storm happens in your generation, you should respond by avoiding such people. Now, the word here that's translated in the ESV, avoid, it does not mean to turn a blind eye. It does not mean to ignore. It means to turn away from, to separate ourselves from these people. This is not a form of cancel culture, you might consider, because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus actually gives us a pattern for how we should address those in sin and those affected by scandal or guilty of heresy. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus commands us, when we want to address these things in our communities, we go first person to person, bringing what we perceive to be a sin or a fault to our brother or sister one-on-one. -on -one. 
if they do not heed our warnings and our call to them to repent of their sin and to have faith in Christ, Jesus commands us to bring two or three with us to confirm the facts of what it actually this person is walking away toward. And if those people come and compassionately and fervently seek their restoration and are rejected, Jesus says, bring that case to the church, to the elders, so that this can be dealt with in a way that is appropriate to the case. Jesus commands that if that person remain unrepentant, then we are to separate ourselves from this individual. As J.C. Ryle once said, there is one thing which is even worse than controversy, and that is when false doctrine or scandal are tolerated, allowed, or permitted among God's people without protest. Not all separation is bad. Not all division is bad. Like cutting out a cancer, sometimes separation is necessary. And Paul says sometimes the spiritual storms that are raging to require us as God's people to embrace the difficulty that it is to avoid such people. Guarding the gospel in our generation means bold enough to separate ourselves from those who would destroy the peace and the purity of God's church. We continue to pray for those people, to petition on their behalf to the Lord that they would repent of their sin, that they would avoid God's wrath. But if we do not avoid them, then we are welcoming a hurricane into our lives and into our churches. The opposite of this, Paul says, is to stand firm on the word of God. Look in verse 14. Paul says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In verse 14, Paul says continue, and it doesn't mean progress, it means abide. It means remain exactly where you are. What Paul is saying to Timothy is when storms rage in your churches, stand on scripture. It is the safest place that you could be. Like determining where you need to run and where you need to evacuate to if we were in a situation where a hurricane was crashing down on top of Rochester. Paul is saying, church, don't move a muscle. Stand firm on the scriptures. Find shelter in God's word. Because the scriptures are the very living words of God. Notice how Paul describes the Bible in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. What Paul is saying here, breathed out by God. And I want you to take a moment and put a Bible in your hand. What Paul is saying is that this Bible that you are holding in your hands, these received writings of the Old and New Testament, they do not contain the words of God. They do not become the words of God when used properly. 
They are in and of themselves the very words of God. God is speaking to you through these words when you read them. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own, someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible is unlike any other book that you could possibly have in your life. Scripture is not a man-made book. It is a God-made book. And what this means is that the things that scripture speaks to, claims that it makes about reality, when those claims are interpreted correctly, we can be certain that they are true. They are infallible, without fault. They are inerrant, without error. Whatever God's word says about reality, about God, about us, about our culture, about the world, about creation, it is true. Why? Because God cannot lie. That is why. This means that God's word is not only perfectly accurate and truthful when interpreted correctly, it also has the supreme authority in the world and over our lives, especially as Christians. And so what this means is that if any church or any individual opinions contradict or go beyond what the word of God says, they go their own way. We need to avoid such things and instead submit ourselves to the scriptures. Because it's when we do this, when we actually root ourselves in God's word in every part of our lives, especially in the midst of controversy, that we will find that God's word is profitable for our lives. I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 again. Paul says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? Profitable here, it means helpful, it means valuable. It's like how you talk about going to the gym if you do that sort of thing. Right? When we, we don't go to the gym for its own sake. If you do, I'm sad for you. We go to the gym, we engage in working out because we know that it is profitable, that it is helpful, that it is good for us. So what, what is the profitable, valuable, good end that scripture is seeking? Well, it's that we would be, Paul says, complete, equipped for every good Work. These two words in the Greek, they mean nearly the same thing. It means that we would be furnished with what we need in order to live out the calling that God has given us perfectly. We have been given through the scriptures everything that we need for life and for godliness. Now, we need to pause here because the temptation here, I think, is to follow the sentence forward to determine how that works in our lives. We might be tempted to look at 16 and 17 and say, therefore, what the Bible is supposed to do and how it is supposed to be used is to be used in teaching and reproving 
and correcting and training. And you are half there. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4. The word of God, as we confessed, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. But if we go forward, before we look back, what we're going to do is put the cart before the horse. We will fail to actually realize the first thing that scripture desires to do before it instructs us about how to live and it instructs us about Christ. I want you to go back to verses 14 and 15. But as for you, Christian, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If we use the Bible simply to teach, reprove, correct, and train, what we're doing is taking the gospel and turning it into law. What we're doing is taking the Bible, which is meant to be a surgical tool, and turning it into a club to beat people to sin less and do good more. That is a horrible religion. It is not only a horrible religion because it is damaging, but it is a horrible religion because that is not what the Word of God has said. The Word of God, the Scriptures, are not a self-help manual or a club. If we approach them this way, we're going to find ourselves, who are sinners, desperately unable to turn ourselves into saints. You know what that's like. The gospel message of the scriptures is not us. It is about Christ. The Old Testament and the New Testament alike are about Jesus. The Old Testament pointing to and promising his coming and the coming redemption that comes with him. The New Testament looking back and reflecting on all that Christ has done through his life through his death on the cross, through his resurrection and ascension, reflecting on what that actually means for us through faith alone. It is only after we behold Jesus in the scriptures that we will understand what it means to be shaped by the scriptures. It is only by looking at Jesus that we understand what we are being taught. It is only by looking at Jesus that we understand how we are being reproved or corrected or trained. As, Matthew, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is what it looks like to stand firmly on the scriptures. It looks like resting in Christ's work alone. Because that is what the scriptures are chiefly pointing to. And it's when we do that, that we will endure. This is Paul's confidence. You look at verses 10 and 11, he describes that confidence. He says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Yet from them all, the Lord has rescued me 
Paul's speaking from personal experience how he has seen the work of God through Christ transform him from a heinous sinner to a saint. And from a saint who is called to a mission to a saint who has suffered for that mission in his own generation. And he is saying to Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Stand firm on the scriptures. And when you suffer in your culture and in your church and in your generation, know you are in good company. Paul knew that he was living in the last days. Paul knew that he was living in the hurricane season of history. And so what that meant is he wasn't deterred or distracted by the storms. He was just prepared. He says, I endured. The Lord rescued me. Paul knows that in and through Christ, he will not be overcome even by a death sentence. For Christ has overcome the world. Paul knew that in and through Christ, nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ. And that he would be, as it says in Romans 8, more than a conqueror. It's in this confidence that Paul boldly separated himself from evil imposters and called Timothy and us to do the same. It's in this confidence that Paul stood firmly on the word of God. And it is by doing those things in our generation that we will leave a gospel legacy. May we, through God's word to us this morning, have that same confidence that we might be prepared as Paul and Timothy were prepared for the storms that we are facing in our generation so that we as Grace Church might leave a gospel legacy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you provide for us in and through your word, especially as your word points us to your greatest provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for taking our sin upon yourself and for giving us your righteousness that we so desperately need. Thank you for continuing to care for us and helping us by your spirit to endure in our own generation. Strengthen us this morning as your people that we would stand firm on your word and avoid those who are running away from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.